We are back, and this time, oh my, oh my gosh, we are back. Okay, technical difficulties, it's always fun. We are back, and this time we have somebody new. I have someone new this time, it's not like repeats, right? it's amazing. Anyways, we are with Miss Annie Sullivan. She is very well known in the Indianapolis area. Thank you. Could you tell people a little bit about yourself? But most importantly, something that no one really knows about you that you're willing to give up. Oh, okay. That's exciting. So, yeah, I was born and raised in Indianapolis, lived here my whole life, but um, love to travel. And I can tell you that I've been to every single continent, including Antarctica. And I did a polar plunge in Antarctica. That's something I don't normally tell people. And wow. I only went up to my thighs, though, because it was so cold. I, I, I would imagine that. <laughs> I, I would imagine. So... But we are going to talk about, obviously, you, of course, but a little bit about a touch of gold, ladies yes. and gentlemen. It's such and so, and she's even matching. That's the other I know, thing. I know, I know. I try to match at all events. You know, it just makes you stand out and hopefully people remember you. You know, it is one of those things. And I love, we were just talking about this a little bit off kind of, because we're, we're depicting Midas and going bit off track with but enough to still be true kind of thing so let's talk about Cora and how she faces both her own fears and external threats in a touch of gold how does the story explore the challenges of balancing personal growth and the responsibilities of saving her father's kingdom yeah and <laughs> I love this the lessons what lessons can readers actually take away from Cora's journey? Yes, so many good questions there. We can start at the top. Okay. Okay, so A Touch of Gold is about the cursed daughter of King Midas. And it kind of came about because, you know, in so many versions of the myth, King Midas' daughter is just a forgotten entity. She's only there so that King Midas learns that turning things to gold was actually a curse. Mm -hmm. And so in my version, I wanted to give her, you know, a little bit more action and make her an actual character. And so I said, well, you know, if, if your father turned you to gold, but you got turned back into a living, breathing, cursed human being, what would that do to you? Oh. And so that brings us to that conflict. You know, she doesn't have a great relationship with her father because he turned her to gold as a child and then he kind of abandoned her because he was ashamed of what he did. You know, he almost put gold and greed and wealth above his own family and he thought he was doing it to save his kingdom, you know, to build up his treasury. And then this happened, you know, he, he ruined his daughter's life in a lot of ways because she does have a lot of lasting side effects from being turned to gold. She can, you know, sense other objects that her father turned to gold. She has some gold powers of her own. And so she does have a lot of this inner and external conflict that you asked about. I mean. She's got this bad relationship with her father. How does she deal with that? And then on top of that, when her father's, you know, the things he turned to gold get stolen, she has to be the one to go out and bring them back. And now she has to leave the safety of her palace to do that. And it's it's a hard journey for her because there's lots of rumors about her. Like she leaves golden footprints when she walks or she turns back into a golden statue when she sleeps. And so she really has to go there and face a world that she's not prepared for and that, you know, people might actually want to go after the girl with golden skin, so. You know, it, it is that celebrity kind of <laughs> identity, you know. It is. You, it's, it's, it's their version of the paparazzi, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, she could be a Kardashian in her Oh universe, my gosh, you know? <laughs> her as one of the bad guys. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the Island of the Lost Souls. Yes. Okay. 
and it's a dangerous place filled with pirates and other criminals. And can you discuss how the atmosphere and the landscape of the island contributes to the tension in the story and forcing Cora to confront her deepest fears? Oh, of course. That's actually the moment in the story where Cora has to go and touch gold. And she has, you know, put off touching gold for almost her entire life because the last time she did it, she actually turned someone else to gold. And so getting to this island, she knows a piece of her father's treasure is hidden there. She can sense the other objects her father turned to gold. She goes after it. She knows it's on this island and it's the worst possible pub with the worst possible pirates you could ever imagine. And she has to go in there and not only face them, but find this piece of gold and, and face, you know, face that fear of what it's like to touch gold when you think you've killed someone okay. for touching it the previous time by turning them to gold because that is what she's been told her entire life, that the last time she touched gold, not only did it hurt her, it hurt someone else. Yeah. So that is her biggest fear. And so she goes to this island, which, you know, in itself is a very trapped environment. It's a dangerous environment. And now she has to just face multiple fears. And for her, the pirates are kind of like, eh, I can deal with pirates. It's the gold that's scary. And so it's a really big turning point for her that she goes into this place and she's willing to do it because she wants to repair that relationship with her father. And she wants to be the person that's kind of free of this curse in a lot of ways. And you, you never thought the idea of... Um... Pirates just, eh, it's, <laughs> pirates are fine. It's the gold. It's the gold right. that's driving me nuts. It's scary. Which I think is kind of the unique twist of it. It know? is because, you know, these pirates may just had a bad day when right. someone came around. They may be the nicest pirates in the world. <laughs> in this case, probably not. Right. So, but final question real quick. The story is told from Cora's perspective. <laughs> giving readers the first-hand look at understanding the conflicts uh, in the book and the insights it does uh, provide into her relationship, like you said, with all the characters like Count Westbrook and Royce. What is that relationship really like? And how is she really trying to uh, keep arm's length away? Yeah, I mean, her whole life, Cora has always kept everyone at arm's length. I mean, in the beginning of the book, she wears a veil, she wears gloves because she is so terrified of touching gold. And so she really doesn't have a lot of close relationships. It's very hard for her to get close to people because either they're terrified of her or they want her for her golden skin and think, oh, she might be worth something. Does she have golden blood? Like, let's cut her open and see, you know, right? <laughs> That's terrifying. Yes, yes, but that's something you think about when people are greedy. I mean, her own father was greedy, so all of her relationships have kind of been tainted by this golden touch, this golden curse. And so it is up to her to really go out into this world. And, you know, you can kind of see the shift in the book as she starts to, to take off her veil and lose her gloves and be able to touch gold and interact with it and say, I am stronger than this curse. Yeah. And that's kind of the message I want people to take away from this is you can face your deepest fear, right? If it's, you know, public speaking or touching things, if you're, you know, have germophobia, things like that. Like you can learn to face your fears by maybe doing them in smaller increments. And so that's kind of the message that I, I hope people take away from this is like, you can repair your relationships, but you have to look at them honestly first in order to kind of get an accurate view of like, okay, well, this is where things stand. How can we make them better? Annie, thank you so much for being on here. I cannot, this, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> A praise for a touch of gold. Go for it. Find it. One last question, real quick, before because I have to know: What is your writing kryptonite? Oh, writing kryptonite. Yes. 
it's probably my puppy because she just wants to play with me all the time. And she's always jumping on me and being like, mom, mom, can we play? Can we play? And I have to be like, oh, honey, mom has to do some writing today. And then you just sit there and just pet her. Yeah, and then I play with her. She's so cute. She's a long-haired dachshund and oh, she's like the love of my life. I can't help it. Puppies, ladies and gentlemen, puppies. We will be right back with our next author. back and this time we have mr charles kelly yes sir and we are talking about crossroads yes and in 10 words or less could you tell us exactly what crossroads is all about i will do my best <laughs> okay go for it if the show sons of anarchy had a sense of humor and a little less murder it's kind of what I'm going for. I, mean, I don't know if that was 10 words, but I tried. I don't care. I like that line. <laughs> I like that line. Man, that's great. So can you tell us about the inspiration behind the setting of Rough River Falls? Yeah, so um, I I came up with the name of a, 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 a fictional town um, called Rough River Falls, and I just thought that the name of the town sounded cool. And so I just did some online uh, kind of research, and it turns out that there's a real geographic location in Kentucky. There, there's an actual rough river. Yeah, I saw that. I was yeah. like, is this real? Is this based so, on something real? So I said it in that area, but the town that's described in the book doesn't exist. Yeah, I was about to say, I was looking at it because, again, I was like, I was typing in uh, Rough River Falls just to make sure, and it came up as like, oh. This is interesting. Okay. Yeah. So let, let's talk about Will's past a little yes. bit. Um, because Will's past with the Outlaw uh, Motorcycle Club adds an interesting layer to his character overall. Uh, how does his history with the club affect his actions and decisions throughout the story? Yeah. So, so Will grew up, um, his dad was part of the club when he was young, and it kind of ruined his childhood. And he goes off and joins the Air Force and comes back to town to infiltrate the club with, you know, kind of a hidden agenda. And so his intent is really just to ruin the club, um, you know, and just kind of get his payback from when he was young. And so while he's doing that, he finds out that there's somebody involved in the club kind of on the, the periphery um, that maybe he doesn't want to hurt that person. Uh, and so then there's, you know, some of that drama and conflict in that sense that, well, I still need to take down this organization, but maybe there's somebody in here worth kind of saving. Yeah. So the book summary hints at a conflict between Will's personal vendetta and his duty, like as you said, as an uncovered federal agent. Yep. Um, how does the, how did you balance these conflicting motives, uh, motivations to create tension and still keep the readers engaged yeah um so outlaw bikers really just kind of don't have a a real strong um trust in people that's say the least yeah right so yeah. i think i think i can safely say that without getting put on anybody's bad list yeah you're pretty good at it. um but with will's history they kind of welcome him because they know him but he's also been away for a while kind of training and, and things mm -hmm. like that and so he's able to kind of keep that hidden a little bit but there's still some suspicion that kind of builds up along the way yeah. um and will is put in situations that as a lawman 
probably need to steer clear of. Right. But he can't avoid them altogether because then that's just going to ratchet up the suspicion. Yeah. Right. So there's just that natural conflict between Will's duty as as an undercover DEA agent um, versus his kind of ultimate end goal of taking the club down. And, and that's something that I believe that a lot of people need to really understand is that there is that conflict ex- internally yeah. and externally, because again, like you said, he's, this is life or death for him, yeah. you know, but he's also pushing those borders and those barriers of like, okay, I have to do this. I don't want to, but I kind of have to. Yeah. And, and as the book goes along, you kind of actually see that conflict inside Will where you see him kind of bending the law yeah. to be able to navigate kind of both worlds. And it really takes a toll on him. And he starts doing some things in there that's you can kind of see the club is affecting him. Yeah. Um, and so I, I try to kind of add that layer to that dynamic as well. Yeah. So let's get back to the, the humor part of this. Sure. You know, humor and murder seem like an unlikely pair <laughs> in a way. Uh, unless you're Deadpool, then it's pretty it's, much of the yeah, same it's okay, thing. Right. It's a, yeah, yeah, sure. We'll go with that. <laughs> but... The book's synopsis suggests that the, the King of Chaos Motorcycle Club uh, series successfully blends the two. Can you elaborate on how uh, this incorporates humor into a story about an outlaw motorcycle club and an undercover agent? Yeah, so, I mean, definitely, you know, serious themes. I mean, there's, you know, there there's drug activity. Uh, there is some murder in there as well, so really some big heavy things. So not 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 like a children's book thing. No, okay. No, I wouldn't, wouldn't right. recommend it. Gotcha. Um, but the the humor. So in my daily life, I work in the criminal justice system, and I see some of those big heavy things, and I have to have a sense of humor to kind of be able to work through some of those things. Oh. And so that is kind of how the humor ties in. Um, and I'm a big fan of Deadpool, and so there's there's some of those tendencies as well, and there's some breaking of the fourth wall in there, and, and things like that. So it, it's one of those things, like, it, and it, it, ladies and gentlemen, you've known me for a while. Like, I'm a veteran as myself, so like you, we have some dark humor in ourselves, and it, yes. it's our it's our way of coping with everything around. Absolutely, us. you can't take yourself too, too seriously. Oh no, because if we do, then it, you know something's yeah. going to happen, right? You know. So, final question. As you were writing this, what became your your worst writing kryptonite? What was your worst weakness? Um, when I was writing this first book, so this is book one out of a four-book series right, right now, and I didn't know what I was doing. So my biggest kryptonite was just trying to figure it out as I went along, and I didn't have an outline. I had, at, at a certain point, I had about two-thirds of the book done, and I didn't know how to connect that to get to the end. And that was my biggest kryptonite was trying to figure out how to plan and and you know kind of get to the the finish line. Yeah. Um, and so, I ended up working it out. At, things magically kind of fell into place. I couldn't be happier with how the end of this book turned out, um, which wasn't planned. So <laughs> again, pantsers. Yeah. You know, so just a happy accident. Um, but I learned from that. This the books two, three, and four <laughs> did have somewhat of an outline to kind of help. Uh, eliminate that from happening. There you go. Well, Charles, thank you again for being on here. Appreciate Ladies and gentlemen, Kings of Chaos, Crossroads by Chris, or excuse me, by Charles Kelly. I don't know why I said Chris. Yeah. Anyway, it's all the same. Go out, find the book, get it yourself, get the series yourself, and we will be right back with our next author.
All right, so we are back, and Mark here, Mark uh, Lilly? Mark Lilly, yes. Mark Lilly is our first poet <laughs> on the show. I feel so, privileged. That's great. Good. <laughs> so he wrote a book called Lucky Boy. You're such a lucky boy. I am. So, so tell us about Lucky Boy. Yeah, so Lucky Boy, uh, it's my debut poetry collection, and it really uh, focuses on my childhood experiences growing up in small town Kentucky in the 70s and 80s. And uh, it deals with a lot of kind of family relationships, dynamics, kind of the uh, some traumas, internal and external traumas of childhood. And then sort of how the narrator as a child carries those traumas into adulthood. And then ultimately how those might impact adult relationships uh, later on. So, so pretty much this is a memoir for you. Almost. Well, in, in a sense. In a in sense. Um, it, I always um, have to caution folks because a lot of folks think poetry, especially if it's written in the first person, yeah. is memoir. Yeah. And what I tell folks is that think about the, the narrator in these poems as not me necessarily, but mm -hmm. someone who's uh, been informed by the same experiences I've had. So really thinking about the narrator as a character almost separate from the poet, even though a lot of the experiences here certainly happened to me. Mm -hmm. um, but the poet's creed is always fidelity to the poem and not to personal experience. It has a creed. I yeah, it is a creed. Had it, a creed. I, I think I may have made the creed up, but yeah. Hey, so. you know what? <laughs> that's where Doc, trademark that. That's right. That's good. That's right. So tell us a little bit of the difference, because obviously we have a lot of authors that sure. watch and listen to this story, too. Sure. What is the different? How How is writing poetry different from writing like a novel or short story? Yeah, so a couple of things I think about. One is is really more the economy, right? Uh, when you're writing a poem, what separates poetry from prose largely is the line and lineation, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's the economy of the writing, and I think the intensity of, of the writing, which is a little bit different than prose, right? The other thing though is, you know, I think a lot, there's a lot of misperceptions around poetry. Um, a lot of the elements of prose contemporary poets now incorporate into poetry. So things like characters, setting, uh, dramatic situations, etc. right? So I employ a lot of those techniques that prose writers use in creating my poems. And I think you find that a lot of contemporary poets are, are doing that now. So the, the line between uh, prose and poetry is blurred a lot more than it was maybe 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, because just like any storyteller, poets are as well Dry, driven, excuse me, sure. driven yeah. as much as a, a novelist is. So there's Absolutely. a lot of work that goes into it. Sure. And I think sometimes there's a lot more work that goes into poetry because you have to hit a certain rhythm. Absolutely. Rhythm is critical. And, and you know, and not that every word isn't important in a, in a right. piece of fiction, but you, you really uh, can't waste words or lines in poetry, right? Everything really matters in terms of the, the whole of the poem. So, there's that, I think that's a little bit different than prose as well. Yeah, because, you know, when you're standing up and reading these poems out loud, sure. the intensity, yeah. the it's all based off of a rhythm. Absolutely. And yep. I think that's a lot of things that novelists don't really have to deal with. Right. We, we have the ability of, you know, hitting that roller coaster of sure. uh, hitting certain points at certain levels. But with poems, it's really just every single line is so important. Absolutely. And every line sort of has to carry its own weight, right, as you're kind of going through the poem as well. So absolutely. Yeah. So so let me ask you this. In, in, in regards to many of these poems that you have in here, 
which one do you think was the hardest to write about? And if it doesn't hurt that much, yeah. what was the inspiration behind it? That's a great question. Um, I would say it, it's probably the, the poem that's in the center of the, of the book. It's a poem called Lineage. And it's a rather long poem. It's in um, several sections, right? And it's the it's a poem about so in in the book the character uh, narrator ostensibly me right. loses his father at a young age, and so this is the adult uh, narrator now taking his young son to visit the grave of his grandfather who he never met, uh -huh. and so it's sort of walking the the grandson uh, through that experience and attempting to sort of help him get to know his grandfather in that moment. And so um, it was difficult because it, it brought back certainly a lot of sort of memories from, from childhood, but it also really helped me kind of articulate to my son um, what his grandfather was like, even though he's never really gonna get a chance to, to meet him, obviously. So it was a very emotional type of poem to write, but also something that was difficult because that's the type of content that become that can become too sentimental right yeah. uh, if you if you're not careful and so being able to kind of pull back and, and demonstrate a certain amount of restraint so you don't kind of spill over into sentimentality um that was a challenge as well yeah mark thank you again for being on here thank you so let me ask you this final question real quick before you leave yeah what is your writing kryptonite what is your weakness <laughs> wow that's a great question writing kryptonite you know, it's it's probably um, when I'm not writing often or writing well, it's because I'm not reading often and reading well. And I think that's the case for most poets and most writers. So if I'm going through a, a stretch where I'm not reading poetry and engaging with poetry, then I'm not writing it. And I'm certainly not writing it well. So my kryptonite's probably um, uh, not reading as much as I need to. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it right here. You need to read more. That's if you right. want to be a writer, you need to read more. If you need more. So, critical. again, we will be right back. Mark, again, thanks, thanks, for, pleasure. Being thanks for being here. Thank, thank, thank you. you. And we are back, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it is a... This is going to be a little bit different because uh, we had some technical difficulties. So right now we're just going to do audio right now. And we've got another. Oh, my gosh. I have so many repeat customers. It's, it's, it's insane. A year later, Mr. Robert Bowling, uh, who wrote Wicked Fishers last year, is actually now working on his new copy of a book. What it, He says he doesn't have a title yet, but he has a working what title. What is the working title of it? So the working title is going to be something like Vigilantes in the Heartland. Um, it's going to be a book about the history of vigilantism in the state of Indiana. Well, you know, because we got plenty of that, you know. It's what it, so give us a little bit of an insight on like what inspired you to write about vigilantes in Indiana. So I'm a former uh, retired police officer. So with my background in law enforcement, I was kind of interested in understanding about why or the history of uh, law enforcement but also how law enforcement was not equipped or adequate back then in the you know the frontier days so citizens had to band together for their own protection and we have had vigilante groups all throughout our existence 
Um, even we have we have vigilante groups still today uh, operating in tandem with law enforcement. So I thought what was interesting is to to try to map out the the early primitive law enforcement that we had, and then how citizens had to come together to protect themselves because there wasn't that much law enforcement back then. So in regards to the research and the flow of some of these historical vigilantes and everything, could you give us an example of like one of your favorite stories that you've came across of that you're putting into the book? Yeah. So back in the, during the time of Dillinger, um, Dillinger was leading all these bank robberies all throughout Indiana. And we did not have a state police at the time. So all we had was the sheriff. You had local law enforcement. And so the Banking Association of Indiana said, we need protection for our banks. So they created a plan to create banking vigilantes. Basically, it was citizens picked from the community. They would be given constable powers with the power to go out and arrest bank robbers. When a bank robbery happened, alarm would sound, and these banking vigilantes, they were in they were given powers by the government to go out and track down bank robbers. People like Dillinger and people like in his gang. Um, and I thought that was really a, a fascinating vigilante group. Because what I what I encountered is that when you hear the word vigilante, most people equate it a negative meaning to it. However, a lot of vigilante groups operated within the law and they were actually given arrest powers by the government because the government realized that we didn't have a lot of um, law enforcement officers to handle the rising amount of crime. Um, so banging vigilantes is one, one group that was authorized by the government, but then you had other groups such as um, the white caps, who were people that went after uh, people who were lazy, drunkards. These they operated back in the 1800s, late 1800s, um, and they operated n- n- uh, mostly in southern Indiana. But they were more interested in going after people who did not pull your weight in society, and that they would basically beat you if you didn't do what they expected. What do you think that would have been like today if we actually had one of those vigilantes? Do you think we there had been a difference in the way people act and react to certain things in the modern world? Um, I believe so, but my take on vigilantes is that we still have vigilantes today, um, but they've taken on different forms. Um, and one of the things I've noticed is that vigilantes have gone digital. Uh, there are groups operating here in Indiana that go after um, people who engage in like things like child pornography, um, child predators. They say that law enforcement is not keeping up, and they they feel like they have to go out and do these things um, to try to catch child predators on their own. And although I applaud their efforts and understand why they're doing it, Law enforcement has also said you are not a law enforcement officer. You can open, you can expose yourself to being sued um, and things like that. So, my personal opinion on vigilantes is throughout history, law enforcement officers have had to depend on citizens to help them. 
but everybody needs to know what their defined role is in society. And it's okay to have people that want to take their, that want to protect themselves, but you also need to know when you don't cross that line of taking the law into your own hands. So that's, that's kind of my take on it. So knowing that this is still in progress, how long do you think it'll be until we can actually get a copy of this book? I'm about two chapters done, or I'm about two chapters away from being done with the book. Um, I have until February to write the book, and I will be done way before then. Um, this book has taken off, um, and I've enjoyed writing it. I've learned so much about the history of law enforcement, how, how law enforcement has evolved, and, um, and I think this is going to be a great book for anyone who's interested in law enforcement has a background in law enforcement or anybody who's just interested in true crime or that type that part of history thank you again robert for being here i appreciate thank it you. so ladies and gentlemen be on the lookout for robert bowling's new book what is it called again as of right now it's like vigilantes in the heartland vigilantes on the heartland we'll get more more to that when it gets closer to that time We are back, and this time, history is being made in in uh, Indianapolis again. We have another Dillinger actually here, Mr. Rex Dillinger, who is, by the way, an actual relative of the real Dillinger back in the 40s? 1933, 33, 34. Give or take, we'll do all that. But in this case, uh, he is actually talking about... Oh, Dillinger was a little bit on love too. He was very honest about what he was doing. He was he was very respectful. All, all Dillingers are romantics. It runs in the family. All you heard it from right here. All Dillingers are romantics by heart. So, speaking of which, this gentleman has written a book called A Conscious Choice of Love, and it follows a young man by the name of Scott and his girl sally as they navigate their lives facing challenges heartache along the way can you share a moment from the story that illustrates their resilience and determination to choose love even in the first in the face of adversity yeah that's that's a really good question because in this story these two have had a history uh before they met each other of of some hard times some bad things that had happened to them they get together and they, and they let their guard down and they come together as soulmates and they say, you know, we're never going to have to face that again. But the, that's not life. And so in their life, they come to a time where both of them have kind of pulled away from each other. They've let their jobs get uh, in, in the way of their relationship and they both end up having an affair. And so they are faced with a crisis of how are they going to handle this? Are they going to get through it? Or are they going to split up? And in the end, it took a lot of really hard work for them to get through that, but it made their relationship and their bond and their marriage much stronger than for the rest of, of their lives. Now, this takes back this takes place back in the 1970s, correct? That that's when it starts, 1970s, and it actually runs for about 50 years into the 19 or into 2020. So, 1970s being vibrant backdrop for the story. Um, 
it offers a lot of stark contrast to uh, Scott's conversation. Uh, co- excuse me, conf- I can't say this. Conservation. I can't. Conservative. That's the word. Conservative upbringing. Um, how do the cultural shifts and evolving social norms of the era influence the character's personal growth and the trajectory of their relationship? You know, so I grew up. I'm the same age as Scott. Not that this is about me, but but obviously there's there's things that I drew upon my own experiences. Um, and so I grew up in that 70s. I went to Indiana University at 74, you know. And I grew up in that very strong Christian background. But that was a time of rebellion, too. And I was one of those people that rebelled. And it had to be a learning process over a long period of time for Scott, for me, I think for a lot of uh, listeners of, in your audience that have had, that are my age, you know, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, they've had to go through a lot of difficult, personal look at their life and say, hey, this is what I thought I wanted. This is what the world told me I wanted. But in reality, I've realized through living this life that there's a lot more out there than just partying, having fun, doing whatever you want to do, that we make a choice in life to love people, and that love is what binds us together. Absolutely, and I'm glad that you said all that because, again, even for the younger listeners that are going to be listening to this, that's a different lifestyle for them in some ways because we unfortunately allow a lot of our work to get in the way of our relationships and it does make it a lot harder for us um final question real quick about the the, you have unfolded through the perspectives of the entire story between for both scott and for uh, Sally. Can you give us an example of a scene where the shifting points of view enhanced the reader's understanding of the character's emotions and motivations? Um, it's hard to do that without giving away a lot of little twists and turns that happen in this story because I think the readers are going to find that this is not just a love story. This is a love story, but it's also a murder story, and it's also a mystery story, and it's also a lot of other stories all combined in one. Because nobody's life is just on a simple track. We all have little branches that go off, and a lot of things happen in the lives of Scott and Sally, their children, their grandchildren, that that don't always end up the way we would like it to end up, but it ends up the way real life is. But the bottom line, the moral of the entire story is no matter what you go through life, if you choose to love and you put love as that, that most important thing in your life, where you're putting the, the needs of other people above yourself, where you really want to, to reach out and help other people, whether it's family or whether it's friends or whoever it is, that in the end, that's really all that brings you any satisfaction in life. I wrote this story. I, I have uh, seven grandkids. None of them are mine biologically, but they're all my grandkids. I have three children. None of them are mine biologically, but they're all my children. And so that, that conscious choice that I made to love them and that they made to love me is what this story is built on and, and how that pulls everything together in your life so that at the end of your life, which I'm near— 
you realize how important that love and relationships are and all the rest of it, the job, the money, the fun, the playing, the partying, it means nothing in the end. In the end, it means the, what those relationships have for you. I could not say it any better. Thank you so Thanks, much. Brother. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, folks, that's a wrap for this episode of Beyond the Pen. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to stay connected and up to date with everything Beyond the Pen, follow us on Twitter at Beyond the Pen Pod and Instagram at Beyond the Pen Podcast. For even more content and exclusive access to our guest profiles and more, make sure to visit our website at beyondthepenpodcast.com. Don't forget to join our Facebook fan page to interact with our favorite authors and fellow fans of the show. And if you want to take your Beyond the Pen experience to the next level, check out our selection of video interviews on Traverse TV's video on demand and live stream. You can access these interviews through your Roku, Amazon Fire, Apple TV, Google Play, iTunes, or the Traverse TV app. So until next time, thanks again for tuning in and remember to keep writing inspiring and sharing as you go beyond the pen.